All right, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 36 as we continue through Peter's first sermon. This is the first sermon that the Apostle Peter preaches in the book of Acts, and we're doing it in three parts because, like most preachers, he's long-winded and doesn't have a clock. So we're doing it in these stages. We're looking at part two, essentially, verses 22 through 36. And let me just tell you right now... uh, the clock is back, so I won't be long. I can promise you that. I'll keep, us, I'll keep us on schedule. But we have a lot of ground to cover today. We've got a lot of verses to cover. And on top of that, I've added a bunch more verses for us to look at. So I will be reading a lot of scripture. You don't need to try to flip to everything unless you like the challenge. Uh, so just listen as we go through it. And because we do have so much scripture to cover, I'm not going to read all of it on the front end. We're going to read it throughout our time together. So it's Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us today by your spirit, that you would teach us about Jesus. Lord, perhaps you will uh, revive our faith, or maybe, Lord, you will give us the gift of faith for the first time. Lord, perhaps you will, uh, you will confront us with some of our own doubts and call us to believe in the true Jesus. But, Lord, we know that without your spirit, without your help, we're not going to get far today. So would you teach us for your glory and our good? In Jesus' name, amen. So what you believe about Jesus is incredibly important, incredibly important, whether you're a Christian or not. What you believe about Jesus really matters. Who you believe Jesus is matters. In fact, uh, it matters as much as who Jesus actually is. I mean, those are two different things, right? Who is Jesus and then who do you believe Jesus is? When you're asking the question, who is Jesus, then you're saying, like, well, objectively, who is this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and what did he do? And, but who do you believe means, well, do you receive the truth about Christ? Do, have you come to trust him? Do you take him at his word? What you believe about Jesus is one of the most important things about you because it determines who you are. It determines what you are, and it determines your very destiny. In fact, in uh, Matthew, Jesus himself asks this question of the disciples in Matthew uh, chapter 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's referring to himself. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, uh, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So all these ideas, these opinions are floating around about who Jesus really is, the Son of Man. What, What is he all about? And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." This question matters. It particularly matters to a world that is confused by what we believe. And they're confused because 
we believe some strange things, right? I mean, if we're just being honest, we believe that God created the world by speaking it into existence. We, we believe in Adam and Eve, Jonah and a whale. We believe that God became man, dwelt among us, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is coming back, and a whole lot more. We believe a lot of things that are challenging, confusing to the world, and increasingly confusing as our culture here in the West continues to drift further and further away from even just a Judeo-Christian ethic. So the world is confused. What we understand and teach and preach about Jesus matters. And making sure that we're getting this information out there so that it isn't, it isn't just a, 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 an idea for somebody to consider, but a reality that somebody must confront. And it's incredibly important for those in the church, Christians in our churches, who are going through challenging times where they're, they are beginning to assess what it is that they believe. They are going through, some of them are going through this process, right, of deconstruction where they are evaluating the faith that they inherited from their denomination or their church or their parents. And they're pulling it apart to see if it makes sense. And maybe they're wounded, maybe they're hurting, maybe they're doubting, but they're beginning to look at what they have been taught to see. Does it line up with scripture? What am I supposed to do with this? And with all of the challenges and, and some of the bad doctrines that we sometimes inherit, we have to come back to this because this is the foundation that saves. We could disagree on a lot of things, but Christians do not disagree on who Christ, our Savior, really is. And so if we're going to... If we're going to summarize the whole of this part of Peter's message, right? If we're going to, the summary for today, the principle that I want us to hold on to, it is this. It's that the knowledge of Christ is what saves us and unites us. Right? For a world that is lost, for Christians that are confused, it's the knowledge of Christ. Not culture, not the end times. It's the knowledge of Christ that saves us and unites us. It's the knowledge of Christ, not our opinion of Jesus, but what is true about him. And that's, that's what we're going to see today, the true, the real Jesus. So we're in the middle of Peter's sermon, right? And why is Peter preaching? Peter is preaching because before Jesus ascended into heaven, after his death, after his resurrection, he's meeting with the disciples. He's preaching. He's teaching, he's exhorting, and he tells them, listen, uh, I have to go, but I'm going to send my spirit. And when the spirit comes, you will be filled with power and you will be my witnesses all over the world. So you need to wait, wait until the spirit gets here. Well, they're waiting and the spirit comes. We read this in Acts chapter one. The spirit descends, people are filled with the power of the spirit and they all begin to speak in tongues, meaning they all begin to speak in languages, real languages that they don't know. They're speaking in these foreign dialects and they're speaking it as if they do know it. They're making total sense because they're actually preaching the gospel. And everybody around them are marveling because they've come from all over the world into Israel, into Jerusalem to, for worship, and they can hear in their own languages from back home this testimony about God, his power, and his son. They're freaking out. They want to know what's going on. Some are mocking, some are marveling. And so Peter sees his opportunity. Everybody's here, so he steps up and he begins to preach his very first sermon as an apostle filled with the Spirit. And what does he focus in on? What does he dial in on? Jesus. Shouldn't be surprised. He dials in on Jesus. And so what he gives us here is what, something that we all really need, which is a proper understanding of the real Jesus. And so we're going to see 
This Jesus that we actually believe in, whether we're Baptist or Lutheran, like the, 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 the non-denominational, charismatic, Calvinist, those who know Christ agree on these aspects of Jesus. And I'll tell you what they are, five things here. We be believe in a historical Jesus. He actually exists. We believe in a crucified Jesus. We believe in a risen Jesus or a resurrected Jesus. We believe in an exalted Jesus. And we believe in the Lord Jesus. This helps us to round out our understanding of the real Christ. First, in verse 22, in, this, in the middle of this sermon, we see that Jesus was a historical person. He actually existed. We believe in a historical Jesus. What he says in verse 22 it's men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, you know who I'm talking about. You saw this Jesus. This is a real person. Jesus of Nazareth, it gets very specific. So make no mistake about it. The Jesus that we believe in as Christians is a historical person. He's not an idea. He's not an ideal. He's not a myth. He's real. Our faith itself is history. The gospel is historical fact. It's not just ideas and principles. It's the person of Christ living in submission to the will of God, fulfilling all righteousness, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven and coming back for us. Our Savior is historical, real. He was seen and heard. And so Peter is saying, you've seen him, you've heard him. You've watched the miracles, you've listened to his message. They don't need any other evidence that Jesus existed because they all saw him. Now, what about us? We need evidence, right? People want evidence. Did Jesus really exist? Here's the thing. Every once in a while, you'll find some, uh, in some debate, you'll find an atheist debating a Christian uh, saying that there is no reason to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was an actual historical person, which is an odd take because the vast majority of scholarship, secular and religious, affirm Jesus of Nazareth, whoever that was, existed. There is enough evidence. You know, we can look at, at uh, the, the, the first uh, really, the first probably extra biblical account would be from Josephus, right? This Jewish historian. Or we have these, um, these Roman politicians that are referring uh, to this, this Jesus of Nazareth who was considered or called the Christ, who was crucified. People knew that this Jesus existed. But here's the thing, we don't even have to look at the extra biblical material because we, we have this book. Now, I know some people would want to say, well, just you can't use the Bible to prove that Jesus existed because it's circular reasoning. But the reality is, this is a historical document. Like any other historical document out there, like any other document that's been written, we have evidence of Christ's existence in reality because of what this book says. You see, we have more copies of the manuscripts that comprise this book than any other ancient book or work in the world. And not only do we have thousands and thousands of copies of the original manuscripts that make up this book, they, they are the oldest copies that you can get to, to the original source material. We have every reason to trust this book as accurately telling us what happened. Jesus is a historical figure. He's not an idea or a myth. The people who encountered him had to respond to him. They had to make a choice. They had to make a decision. 
And whether they ignore him or embrace him, whether they turn away, whether they determine that he is of no value whatsoever, or whether they bow the knee, they are making a choice in response to who he really is. People either loved him or they hated him. They believed him or they doubted him. Some rejected him, some received him. What will we do with Jesus? That's really the question. What are we going to do? And I'm speaking to Christians and non-Christians. What are we doing with the Jesus who existed, who exists, who is alive, as we're going to see who reigns? Jesus was historical. Our faith is historical. It is not an ideology or a mythology. It is not just principles for better living. So we believe in a historical Jesus. We also believe in a crucified Jesus. There is no knowledge of Christ. There is no proper understanding of Jesus if we miss the meaning of and the significance of his death or his crucifixion. Look in chapter 2, verse 23, as Peter continues. This Jesus, right, this one, the real one, the one who lived and breathed, the one who ate, the one you, you watched, the one you mocked. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We believe in a crucified Jesus. He died, and he didn't just die. He was murdered. He wasn't just murdered or martyred. He was sacrificed. In fact, his death is fundamentally a substitutionary death. He died as a substitute. It's a fun little nerdy exercise that some of us like to do, and that is, like, what's the most important blank in the Bible? Like, it's one of those things that people like to do. Now, I don't ever like to actually conclude this is the most important blank, whatever that is, in the Bible, because A, I'm probably wrong, and B, I just like to hedge my bets a little bit and say, it's one of the most important. But one of those things is people like to say, what's the most important word in the Bible? And people would say, like, what's glory? It's going to be glorious, but it's the big one, right? Glory, that's, that, that captures so much. Or other people would say, well, maybe it's, it's the word grace or it's the, it's the word gospel, right? What's, the, what's this word? It, Jesus, right? There are people, though, that would say the most important word in the Bible is this little word, huper, which means for, F-O-R. Because of the significance of that word, that preposition, right, used in relationship to Christ's death and our salvation. Jesus died for us. He died for sinners. You can't really understand or make sense of Christ crucified unless you understand that his death was substitutionary. Let me just give you a couple of examples of this for idea. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 where Jesus says, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or Romans chapter five, we read it earlier today during the Lord's Supper, Romans chapter five, verses six and eight. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for, who pair, right? On behalf of, in the stead of, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's not just in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament as well. Check out Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. Speaking of the one who would come, the suffering servant who would save his people. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When Christ died on the cross, he was, yes, he was betrayed. Yes, he was railroaded. Yes, it was, it was a nightmare of wickedness. And yet it is the means by which God saves sinners. It's the demonstration of God's love. To say that Christ died for us means that he, he took our guilt. He took on himself our punishment. That's what his death is accomplishing. He takes our guiltiness. He takes all of our sins. The, the New Testament says he becomes sin for us on the cross. So he receives God's righteous indignation against our sins, his judgment against us. He takes our damnation upon himself. That's what it means to say that Jesus died for us. In dying for us, he takes our guilt, but he gives us his grace. He gives us his merit so that now we have reconciliation with God, life eternal. We have the forgiveness of sins. If you don't know the death of Christ, if you don't understand substitution, then you don't understand Jesus. We believe in a historical Jesus and we believe in a crucified Jesus. And I actually love the way that that Peter lays this out because he gets kind of deep. He gets pretty deep in this sermon. Uh, it just in this verse, by laying out both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of mankind. Because you see what he, does, what, he, what he does here. He says, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's sovereignty, you crucified, you killed. So consider that. Consider that. He said, listen, it didn't just happen because bad guys did bad things. It happened according to the plan. It wasn't just a plot by Jewish leadership. It wasn't just a scheme by Roman politicians. It was a divine plan orchestrated by the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and they carried it out perfectly. And yet, Peter says, you are guilty for Christ's death. You crucified him. And when he says this here, when he says you crucified him, he doesn't mean that in the most literal sense. Because who crucified Jesus? Well, technically, technically, it would be the Roman soldiers who literally crucified him, nailed him to the cross. But then he's also holding responsible the, the Roman authorities who orchestrated the whole thing. And of course, here he's talking to a Jewish audience, but he's talking to Jewish leadership. And it wasn't all of the Jews, right? It was, it was Jewish, it was a select group of Jewish leadership that were corrupt and wanted to see Jesus put away, taken away, taken down. But in a very real sense, what he is saying is, is, listen, you are all, we are all guilty for the death of Christ. We're all culpable in his murder because he died for our sins. You are guilty of Christ's death. I killed Christ. This is the point that's being made. We believe in a crucified Jesus, one that we are guilty of murdering with our own sins and waywardness and this this is what we preach right this is what Paul I love that Paul is the way that he is because Paul Paul is like us Paul is messed up Paul is a messy sinner just like you just like me he is not perfect there is no super there are no super saints right there are no super saints but uh, and, and Paul wasn't just he was a believer who was godly he was used by the Lord but he was a mess like you and me but what I did love is that he was never distracted in his preaching 
He had every opportunity to be distracted and to preach all kinds of other important issues of the day. He was never distracted as an apostle. He wasn't distracted by politics or social causes. He preached what? He says it again and again. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he preaches. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. That's what he says. I wanted to know nothing. I'm not interested by comparison. I'm not interested in anything else. I'm preaching this. That's my calling as an apostle. I want to preach Christ crucified because that's the message that saves. That's the hope that we give to the world. Nothing else can save. Nothing else can redeem. So we believe in a historical Jesus. We believe in a crucified Jesus. We also believe in a risen Jesus or a resurrected Jesus. Now here we're going to have to look at verses 24 through 32. So we're going to break this into a few different sections. We believe that Jesus actually, truly rose from the dead. Look at verse 24. We'll start with this. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered death. He beat it. Death could not hold him, could not keep him down. And then just, we're going to come back to what we're skipping over in just a minute, but then go down to verse 29 through 32. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, the Jews loved David because David was, well, kind of a super saint. Right? That's what people think. But the reality is that David was messed up just like us. And maybe that's why they liked him so much because not only was he the king of Israel and that there would be a, a, a king that would reign forever through his line, not only was he a man after God's own heart, they loved David, but David was also messed up like the rest of Israel like us, maybe that's why they liked him so much. Anyways, so here Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Meaning he's still dead. He's still in that grave. You love David, right? You love the fathers. You love David. You love the prophets. It's great. They're all rotted. They're all bones. They're all dust. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, speaking of Jesus, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So there's a lot going on here. But Jesus rose from the dead and it was a true resurrection. Now, Peter is, is pointing to the Old Testament. We're going to go there. Peter's pointing to the Old Testament. He's saying that this was a promised thing, that it was, it was all in the works all along. But he's also saying, listen, you saw this. You knew this. This is not a secret. Jesus' resurrection was real. Like it was, a, it was a tangible thing. It's not like he was, it's not like, oh, it's the spirit of Christmas is alive. It's not like that. It's not like, this, it's not like Jesus was resurrected in some spiritual sense. He was actually raised from the dead. He came out of the tomb, bone, blood, body, breathing. He was raised, but he was raised in a more glorious fashion as well. He would appear with the disciples and talk with them and eat with them. They could touch him. Jesus rose it was a resurrection that was witnessed right it's not like oh yeah it's, uh, this thing totally happened who saw it nobody really saw it just kind of know that it happened you know like where are them golden plates joseph if you know the story and uh we're like well <laughs> you know they're somewhere but like i just don't have time to look for them right now like if you if you, there's no evidence it's pretty hard to believe but there was tons of evidence that jesus actually rose from the dead 
And not just logical arguments that we can make that are winsome. People saw him. I mean, people saw, look at 1 Corinthians, or just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse three. When Paul lays out, here is the gospel in its simplest form. What is the gospel? He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in a court... There it is again, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then he appeared to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, because I'm just the least of the apostles. Lots of people saw Lots of people saw this. Christ was genuinely, truly, literally raised from the dead. And this resurrection was something that was promised. It was foretold. It wasn't a secret. It was something that the, that the disciples should have been anticipating, excited about, but they, they weren't. Peter wasn't. It's like he can see it all now. He knows it all now. He's got the assurance now, but at the time, he was, he was frazzled. But look at verses 25 through 28 of Acts chapter 2. So we're backing up a little bit here. For David says concerning him, so he's going back to the Psalms here. Here's what David had to say. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. David's speaking about himself when he's writing this originally. He's thinking originally of his own context. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You're not going to let me die here, God. David's confident. You've got me. You will never leave me. You're supporting me. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. But David ultimately saw that this would apply to the coming Messiah. I mean, this is what Peter explains. Peter explains this. He looked ahead. He saw that though the suffering servant would suffer unto death, that he would be a sin offering who paid the penalty for sins. He would not stay in the grave. After making atonement, he would rise from the grave. He would conquer sin and death. He would beat the curse. The curse that we all face because of our sin in this world. Curse of sin is death. It's a victorious resurrection. It's a victorious because of the resurrection. It says in Revelation 1.18, right? We just went through Revelation that Jesus has the keys to death. Belongs to him. Death is no longer the end. Death no longer has the final say. Anyone who is in Christ has the victory that Christ has over death. And that is the resurrection. And listen, here's the thing. This is what we believe about Jesus because this is what is true about Jesus. He rose from the dead and either Jesus rose, he, either he truly rose, either Jesus actually rose or we are ruined. There is no middle ground here. We got to be honest enough about our faith to say, okay, we're making some big claims here or the Bible is making some big claims here. And if, if, if we're saying that it's Christ's life, death and resurrection that ultimately liberates us from the curse of sin and grants us eternal life and, and all of that, if Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, if it's just a story, if it's just a myth, if it's just an image about the, 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 the power of, of, of positive being or something like that, if it didn't happen, 
then we are still, as Paul says, we are still in our sins. We are still damned. And not in a metaphorical sense. We're doomed because we will still have to answer for our sins. Just listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. I think it's verse 16. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That is, your faith is useless. Don't come at me with, well, if it's not true, I'm still better off believing in Jesus. No, you're not. You're a liar or a fool. I ain't got time for that, do you? I'm out. If Christ is not raised from the dead, I am out. Paul says it. Your faith is of no value if Christ, if Christ has not been raised from the dead. If, the, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We believe in a risen Jesus, a crucified Jesus, a historical Jesus. We also believe in an exalted Jesus. Look at verses 33 through 35 in this sermon, Acts chapter 2, verses 33 through 35. Being therefore, Jesus, right? Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus is exalted. The Jesus that we believe in is exalted. That is, he has been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. His name is exalted above every other name. He has ascended into heaven, sits on a throne, reigns from heaven, and we're waiting for him to return. Jesus is exalted. It means that he is higher, bigger, more powerful, and has more authority than any other being that exists. Jesus is exalted above all others, above all other gods. Let me just read another passage, Philippians chapter 2. We oftentimes go to Philippians 2.5 to learn about Christ's humility, but Christ's humility really only makes sense when you understand who he really is. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is exalted. He made purification for sins when he died on the cross. He saved sinners. He rose from the dead, conquering death itself, has ascended into heaven, and from there he reigns. Listen, the Jesus that we believe in is not a hero to be remembered. That's not Jesus. There are many heroes to remember and to celebrate. Praise, praise God for them. But they are so small. Jesus is exalted. He's not a hero to be remembered. He's a savior who lives. He's alive. He's reigning. He's, he's ruling. He's at work. He's at work in us even today. 
He's given us his spirit. I mean, Jesus is with us by virtue of his spirit being in us, leading us, teaching us, empowering us to be witnesses. We believe in an exalted Jesus, a historical Jesus, a crucified Jesus, a a resurrected Jesus, an exalted Jesus. And we believe in the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord. That's the confession, right? Jesus is Lord. Almost sounds quaint now these days. Jesus is Lord. It's the kind of thing I used to write on the, on the bathroom at, at the College of DuPage. I'd be in there like as a new Christian graffitiing for Jesus. Jesus is Lord, right? With my, with my Sharpie marker, like destroying government property for, uh, for the glory of God. And uh, one time I was in there and I was sniffing a lot because I don't really know it was, I'm graffitiing. And I come out and there's this guy standing there with a Bible. I'm like, what's up? And he goes, he goes, well, hey, I wanted to, wanted to talk to you about, uh, about Jesus. It's it really happened. And I was like, really? Because I was just writing about Jesus on the, on the bathroom stall in there. And he's like, what were you writing? And I was like, well, I was writing that he's Lord. And he's like, why would you do that? I'm like, well, because I want people should know that he's Lord. And he goes, I wanted to tell you about Jesus because I heard you sniffing and I thought you were doing cocaine in there. And I was like, no, I'm, I was just doing graffiti, which is still a sin, I guess, but it's not quite as bad as, as the cocaine. All right, anyway, that's my ADD kicking in. So Jesus as Lord is the confession of the Christian. It sounds kind of quaint because we see it a lot. You know, it's been in tracks, it's been around. But listen, this is one of the most significant things that you can articulate. It's three words. Jesus is Lord. It defines you. It makes you. It verifies to the world who your allegiance is with and who it is not. Are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? Are you conservative? Are you liberal? Jesus is Lord, right? That's my first and foremost answer above all else. That that trumps everything. It shades and colors everything else that I do find important. And so sure, yeah, I guess guess I'm a conservative, libertarian, conservative. I don't, I mean, there's a lot of things that I am, but none of them really define me. What defines me is Jesus is Lord. You know what it says in Romans 10, 9. A lot of you guys have heard this before. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To say that Jesus is Lord means that you, you, you agree with, you embrace the objective reality that Jesus is Lord over all things, Lord over all creation. He is God. But it's also the affirmation that Jesus is Lord in a subjective way, that he is Lord over you, that he is your Lord that you bow the head, that you stick your knees in the dirt before him and open up your hands and say, you are God. Where else am I going to go for life, for knowledge, for redemption, for purpose, for meaning? We believe in Jesus as the Lord. So we're going back to it. What, What is your confession? What do you believe about Christ? What do you believe? I mean, yes, what is true about Christ? That's most important, right? But in light of that, what do you believe? What do you do with him? You have to do something with Christ. What is your hope in life, in death? Where do you derive your sense of meaning? Where will you find a solution to your guilt? What are you about? What is your message? What is our message? What are we about? 
may it always and only be Christ because he is the only one who saves. Yeah, we believe in a historical Jesus. He exists. We believe in a crucified, a risen, an exalted Jesus. We believe in the Lord, Jesus Christ. Close with one passage of scripture, starting in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Here is a confession we should have that should frame who we are and what we believe. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, He, Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, that is, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are done without Jesus. We have so much room to grow. We have so much to figure out. We have so much baggage that we need to let go of, Lord. But, but let our assurance and our confidence be Christ. May he be our boast, our happiness, our joy, our song, our confidence, because he is our salvation. God, we pray that everyone here would confess Jesus as Lord because we know him as he truly is. The Savior of the sinful. We pray, God, that, that we would all grow in our faith, that we would be revived if necessary, that we would be repentant, that we would be humble, but that we would be bold. God, would you allow this truth of Jesus to be the thing that makes us not just individually, but collectively as a family and as a church? Lead us, Lord, by your spirit to confess Jesus is Lord. In his name we pray, amen.